Good evening, my friends, and welcome to another episode of Terror Radio Podcast. If this is your first time joining me, then welcome. This is a podcast dedicated in bringing you the best of horror and thriller old-time radio broadcasts, as well as original stories. This is your host, Keith, a.k.a. The Radio Show Nerd. And I want to thank everyone who gave me such positive feedback on my last episode, which dealt with urban legends. I'm always apprehensive about performing the original stories. Hopefully, in the following months, I'll actually have professional actors to portray the characters. But for now, it's just little old me and I'm always self-conscious but again the feedback was very positive and I'm truly appreciative so without further ado this is Terror Radio the two radio programs featured tonight are Chamber of Horrors and Beyond Midnight Now, Chambers of Horrors was a show that I never even heard of until a few weeks ago. And I was not able to find any information on this particular series. I mean, nothing. And I scoured the internet for days. I don't even know when this soul episode premiered. I'm assuming it was a pilot episode though and you'll probably notice this also the voice of the announcer slash host sounds very familiar I'm thinking it's the actor Raymond Edward Johnson who was the host for the popular radio series Inner Sanctum the radio play tonight is entitled Waxworks which is an adaptation of the very popular short story which has been performed on a variety of radio programs in fact during my first season the episode entitled Countdown Continues if you ever heard it please take a listen I featured an adaptation from Beyond Midnight but I think this rendition it's just as powerful. So, you know the drill. Sit back, turn down the lights, and listen to Waxworks. Good evening, worshippers of Halloween. Admirers of the ghostly and the ghastly. <laughs> Welcome to my chamber of horrors. And let me tell you a terrible tale of terror. (laughs) My wife will be so pleased you've come. I'm sure she'll want to serve you for dinner.
Come over here by the coffin, won't you? But leave your coat on. I'm going to tell some chilling stories tonight. Bone chilling on this Halloween. <laughs> That's right. Bundle up tight. It would really be a pity if you caught a cold, because then you might leave here coughing. Or should I say, in a coffin. <laughs> Now, friend, turn your lights down low, if you have the nerve. In fact, turn them up, I dare, and listen to a classic tale of terror, the waxwork. No actors other than Mr. William Conrad. Oh, yes, originally there were 15, but 14 died in rehearsal. <laughs> Leaving only Mr. Conrad to carry on. So here he is. In the waxwork. While the uniformed attendants of Mariner's waxworks were ushering the last stragglers through the great glass-paneled double doors... The manager sat in his office interviewing Raymond Hewson. The manager was speaking. Oh, there's nothing new in your request, sir. And in fact, we refuse it to different people, mostly young bloods who try to make bets about three times a week, I should say. We have nothing to gain, something to lose by letting people spend the night in our murderer's den. Now, if I allowed it and some young idiot lost his senses, what would be my position, eh? But uh, your being a journalist somewhat alters the case. Hewson smiled. I, I suppose you mean that journalists have no senses to lose. No, 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 of course not. But one imagines them to be responsible people. Oh, besides, we have something to gain here. Publicity and advertisement. Yes, exactly, said Hewson. Uh, and there I thought we might come to terms. The manager smiled. <laughs> yes, I know what's coming. You want to be paid twice, do you? You know, it used to be said years ago that Madame Tussaud would give a man a hundred pounds for sleeping alone in the Chamber of Horrors. Well, I hope you don't think that we've made any such offer. Uh, what is your paper, Mr. Hilton? Well, I, I, I'm freelancing at present, sir, <laughs> working on space for several papers. However, I, I would find no difficulty in getting the story printed. I'm sure the Morning Echo would use it like a shot. A night with Mariner's murderers... <laughs> No live paper could turn it down, sir. Yes. Uh, how do you propose to treat it? Well, I shall make it gruesome, of course. Gruesome with just a saving touch of humor. The manager nodded and offered Houston his cigarette case. Very well, Mr. Houston. You'll get your story printed in the morning echo, and there'll be a five-pound note waiting for you when you care to come and call for it. But, uh, first of all... You realize it's no small ordeal that you're proposing to undertake. I'd like to be quite sure about you. I'd like you to be quite sure about yourself. I own I shouldn't care to take it on. I should hate having to sleep down there, alone, among them. Why? Asked Houston. Oh, I don't know. Isn't any reason, I suppose. I don't believe in ghosts. If I did, I should expect them to haunt the scene of their crimes or the spots where their bodies were laid instead of a cellar which happens to contain their waxwork images. 
Well, it's just that I couldn't sit alone among them all night with her seeming to stare at me in the way they do. After all, they represent the lowest and the most appalling types of humanity. Well, the whole atmosphere of the place is unpleasant. And if you're susceptible to atmosphere, sir, I warn you that you're in for a very uncomfortable night. Houston had known that from the moment when the idea first occurred to him. His soul sickened at the prospect. But he had a wife and a family to keep. So here was a chance not to be missed. The price of a special story in the morning echo with a five-pound note to add to it. Besides, if he wrote the story well, it might lead to an offer of regular employment. The manager smiled at him and rose. Well, I think the last of the people must have gone by now. Oh, uh, there is one condition I'm afraid I must impose upon you, sir. I must ask you not to smoke. We had a fire scare down in the meadows then this evening. I don't know who gave the alarm, but uh, whoever it was, it was a false one. Fortunately, there were very few people down there at the time, or there might have been a panic. Ah, now, if you're ready, we'll make a move. He led the way through an open barrier and down ill-lit stone stairs, which conveyed a sinister impression of giving access to a dungeon. In a passage at the bottom were a few preliminary horrors, such as relics of the Inquisition, a rack taken from a medieval castle, branding irons, thumb screws, and other mementos of man's cruelty to men. Beyond the passage was the murderer's den. It was a room of irregular shape with a vaulted roof and dimly lit by electric lights burning behind inverted bowls of frosted glass. It was, by design, an eerie and uncomfortable chamber, a chamber whose atmosphere invited its visitors to speak in whispers. The waxwork murderers stood on low pedestals with numbered tickets at their feet. Recent notorieties rubbed dusty shoulders with the old favorites. Fertel, the murderer of Weir, stood as if frozen in the act of making a shop window gesture to young Bywaters. And there was Lefroy, the poor half-baked little snob who killed for gain so that he might ape the gentleman. Within five yards of him sat Mrs. Thompson, that erotic romanticist hanged to propitiate British middle-class matronhood. Charles Peace, the only member of the vile company who looked uncompromisingly and entirely evil, sneered across a gangway at Norman Thorne. Brown and Kennedy, the two most recent additions, stood between Mrs. Dyer and Patrick Mayen. The manager, walking around with Houston, pointed out several of the more interesting of these unholy notabilities. That's Cribbin. I expect you recognize him, insignificant little beast who looked as if he couldn't tread on a worm. Oh, and that's Armstrong. That looks like a decent, harmless country gentleman, doesn't it? And that's Olvacier. You can't miss him, of course, because of his beard. And this one... Who's that? Houston asked in a whisper. Here, come here. Have a good look at him. Huh? This is our star turn. He's the only one of the bunch that hasn't been hanged. The figure which Houston had indicated was that of a small, slight man. Not much more than five feet in height. It wore little waxed mustaches, large spectacles, and a caged coat. 
There was something so exaggeratedly French in its appearance that it reminded Houston of a stage caricature. He could not have said precisely why the mild-looking face seemed to him so repellent, but he'd already recoiled a step, and even in the manager's company it cost him an effort to look again. But who is he? He asked. That, said the manager, is Dr. Baudette. Houston shook his head doubtfully. I, I think I've heard the name, but I forget in connection with what. The manager smiled. Uh, you'd remember better if you were a Frenchman. You know, for some long while, that man was the terror of Paris. He carried on his work of healing by day and of throat cutting by night. Why, he killed for the sheer devilish pleasure it gave him to kill. And always in the same way, with a razor. After his last crime, he left a clue behind him which set the police upon his track. Oh, but he was much too clever for them. When he realized that the coils were closing about him, he mysteriously disappeared. And ever since, the police of every civilized country have been looking for him. There's no doubt that he managed to make away with himself, and by some means which has prevented his body coming to light, uh, one or two crimes of a similar nature have taken place since his disappearance, but he is believed almost for certain to be dead, and the experts believe these recrudescences to be the work of an imitator. It's queer, isn't it, Miss Houston? How every notorious murderer has imitators. Houston shuddered and fidgeted with his feet. I, I, I don't like him at all. What eyes he's got. Yes, this figure's a little masterpiece. You find the eyes bite into you, huh? Well, that's excellent realism, then, for that practice mesmerism. And was supposed to mesmerize his victims before dispatching them. Indeed, had he not done so, it's impossible to see how so small a man could have done his costly work. There were never any signs of struggle. I... I, I, I thought I saw him move, said Houston with a catch in his voice. The manager smiled. You'll have more than one optical illusion before the night's out, I expect, sir. Well, I'm sorry I can't give you any more light because all the lights are on. For obvious reasons, we keep this place as gloomy as possible, then. Eh? Well, Mr. Houston. Good night, Houston wheeled a swivel chair a heavy one upholstered and plush a little way down the central gangway and deliberately turned it so that its back was toward the effigy of Dr. Baudet. For some undefined reason, he liked Dr. Baudet a great deal less than his companions. Busying himself with arranging the chair, he was almost lighthearted. But when the manager's footfalls had died away and a deep hush stole over the chamber... He realized that he had no slight ordeal before him. Among the many figures standing in different natural poses, the effigy of the dreadful little doctor stood out with a queer prominence, perhaps because of a steady beam of light beat straight down upon it. Houston flinched before the parody of mildness which some fiendishly skilled craftsman had managed to convey in wax, met the eyes for one agonized second and then turned again to face the other direction. 
He's only a waxwork like the rest of you. Gilson muttered defiantly. You're all only waxworks. They were only waxworks, yes. But waxworks don't move. Oh, not that he had seen the least movement anywhere, but it struck him that in the moment or two while he'd looked behind him there had been the least subtle change in the grouping of the figures in front. Crippen, for instance, seemed to have turned at least one degree to the left. Or, thought Houston, perhaps the illusion was due to the fact that he had not slewed his chair back into its exact original position. Oh, but there were Brown and Kennedy, too. Surely one of them had moved his hands. Houston held his breath for a moment and then drew his courage back to him as a man lifts a weight. He took a notebook from his pocket and wrote quickly, Memo, deathly silence and unearthly stillness of figures. Like being at bottom of sea. Hypnotic eyes, Dr. Baudet. Figures seem to move when not being watched. He closed the book suddenly over his fingers and looked around quickly and awfully over his right shoulder. He had neither seen nor heard a movement, but... It was as if some sixth sense had made him aware of one. He looked straight into the vapid countenance of Lefroy, which smiled vacantly back as if to say, It wasn't I. No, of course it wasn't he or any of them. It was his own nerves. Or was it? Then why all that silent unrest about him? A subtle something in the air which did not quite break the silence and happened whichever way he looked just beyond the boundaries of his vision. He swung round quickly to encounter the mild but baleful stare of Dr. Baudet. And then without warning, he jerked his head back to stare straight at Crippen. <laughs> He'd nearly caught Crippen that time. You'd better be careful, Crippen, and all the rest of you. If I do see one of you move, I'll smash you to pieces. Do you hear He ought to go, he told himself. Already he'd experienced enough to write his story, or ten stories for the matter of that. Well then, why not go? The morning echo would be none the wiser as to how long he'd stayed. Nobody'd care so long as his story was a good one. Yes, but the manager, one never knew. Perhaps the manager would quibble over that five-pound note which he needed so badly. He wondered if his wife were asleep, or if she were lying awake and thinking of him, <laughs> she'd laugh when he told her that he'd imagine that he'd imagine. <laughs> this was a little too much. It was bad enough that the waxwork effigies of murderers should move when they weren't being watched, but it was intolerable that they should breathe. Somebody was breathing. Or was it his own breath which sounded to him as if it came from a distance? He sat rigid. Listening. Straining. Until he exhaled with a long sigh. His own breath, after all. But... If not, something had divined that he was listening and had ceased 
breathing simultaneously. Houston turned his head swiftly around and looked all about him out of haggard and hunted eyes. Everywhere his gaze encountered the vacant, waxen faces. And everywhere he felt that by just some least fraction of a second he had missed seeing a movement of hand or foot, a silent opening, a compression of lips, a flicker of eyelids, a look of human intelligence now smoothed out. They were like naughty children in a classroom, whispering, fidgeting, and laughing behind their teacher's back, but blandly innocent when his gaze was turned upon them. No. No, this would not do. This distinctly would not do. He must clutch at something, grip with his mind upon something which belonged essentially to the workaday world, to the daylight London streets. He was Raymond Houston, an unsuccessful journalist, a living and breathing man, and these figures grouped around him were only dummies, so they could neither move nor whisper. Well, what did it matter if they were supposed to be lifelike effigies of murderers? They were only made of wax and sawdust and stood there for the entertainment of morbid sightseers and earning-sucking trippers. Oh, that was better. Now, what was that funny story which somebody had told him in the false step club yesterday? Oh, yes. swung his chair so as to bring him face to face with a wearer of those dreadful hypnotic eyes. His own eyes were dilated, and his mouth at first set in a grin of terror, lifted at the corners in a snarl, and then Houston spoke and woke a hundred sinister echoes. You moved! Yes, you did, you moved! I saw you! You Then he sat quite still, staring straight before him, like a man found frozen in the Arctic snows. Dr. Baudet's movements were leisurely. He stepped off his pedestal with the mincing care of a lady alighting from a bus. The platform stood about two feet from the ground. Above the edge of it, a plush-covered rope hung in arc-like curves. Dr. Baudet lifted up the rope until it formed an arch for him to pass under, stepped off the platform, and sat down on the edge, facing Houston. Then he nodded and smiled and said, Good evening. <laughs> I need hardly tell you that uh, not until I overheard the conversation between you and the worthy manager of this establishment did I suspect that I should have the pleasure of a companion here for the night. <laughs> Oh, you cannot move or speak without my bidding. But you can hear me perfectly well. Oh, oh something tells me that you are, uh, shall I say, nervous. My dear sir, I have no illusions. I am not one of these contemptible effigies miraculously come to life. I am Dr. Bordet himself. He paused, coughed, and shifted his legs. Uh, uh, pardon me, but I am a little stiff. Oh, uh, please, let me explain. Uh, circumstances with which I need not fatigue you have made it desirable that I should live in England. 
I was close to this building this evening when I saw a policeman. Regarding me, I thought a little too curiously. I guessed that he intended to follow and perhaps ask me embarrassing questions. So I mingled with the crowd and came in here. A coin bought my admission to the chamber in which we now meet. And an inspiration showed me a certain means of escape. I raised a cry of fire. <laughs> and when all the fools had rushed to the stairs, I stripped my effigy of the cape coat which you behold me wearing, donned it, hid my effigy under the platform at the back, and took its place on the pedestal. <laughs> uh, the manager's description of me, which I had the embarrassment of being compelled to overhear, was biased, but not altogether inaccurate. Clearly, I am not dead. <laughs> Although it is as well that they will think otherwise, no? Is uh, account of my hobby, which I have indulged for years, although to necessity uh, less frequently of late, was in the main truth. For you see, the world is divided between collectors and non-collectors. With the non-collectors, we are not concerned, eh? The collectors collect anything according to their individual taste, from money to cigarette cards, from malls to matchboxes. Uh, I collect throats. He paused again and regarded Houston's throat with interest, mingled with disfavor. Uh, I am obliged to the chance which brought us together tonight, and perhaps it would seem ungrateful to complain. Uh, from motives of personal safety, my activities have been somewhat curtailed of late years, and I am glad of this opportunity of gratifying my somewhat unusual whim. But uh, you, sir, you have such a skinny neck. Uh, if you will overlook a personal remark, I should never have selected you from choice. I like men with thick necks. Thick red necks. He fumbled in an inside pocket and took out something which he tested against a wet forefinger and then proceeded to pass gently to and fro across the palm of his left hand. This is a little French razor. The blade, you will observe, is very narrow. They do not cut very deep, but deep enough. In just one little moment, you shall see for yourself. Huh? Now, I shall ask you the little civil question of all the polite barbers. <laughs> Does the razor suit you, sir? He rose up at the diminutive but menacing figure of evil and approached Houston with a silent, furtive step of a hunting panther. Uh, you will have the goodness to raise your chin a little, then. Eh? Ah, thank you. And a little more, just a little more. Ah, thank you. Merci, monsieur. Merci, merci. Ah, the chamber was a thick skylight of frosted glass, which by day let in a few sickly and filtered rays from the floor above. After sunrise, these began to mingle with the subdued light from the electric bulbs. And this mingled illumination added a certain ghastliness to a scene which needed no additional touch of horror. The waxwork figures stood apathetically in their places, waiting to be admired or execrated by the crowds who would presently wander fearfully among them, 
In the midst, in the center gangway, Houston sat still, leaning far back in his swivel chair. His chin was uptilted as if he were waiting to receive attention from a barber. And although there was not a scratch upon his throat, nor anywhere upon his body, he was cold and dead. Dr. Baudet, on his pedestal, watched the dead man, unemotionally. He did not move, nor was he capable of motion. But then, after all, he was only a waxwork. friend, I do hope that you savor our gruesome little tale of terror and tallow called the Waxwork. <laughs> I just wonder if you had the nerve to listen with your lights turned off. If you did, it's time to turn them on again. Go ahead. Just don't sit there. Get up. Well, what do you know? Stone dead. <laughs> Well, I hope you enjoyed Chamber of Horrors. It's a sin to shame this is the only episode. But who knows, maybe it wound up being a complete series and this was just the episode that survived. But at least we had this, which to me was very enjoyable. Now, our next radio show is a favorite of mine. But then don't I say that almost every episode? Beyond Midnight which was a South African series produced by Michael McCabe and began in 1968 and ended in 1970. The radio play tonight is entitled The Green Vase. And I don't know the exact date it first broadcasted, but I do know it was in 1968. Now this is an eerie and dare I say, freaky one that will keep you on the edge of your seat. So, we all know the drill. Sit back, turn down the lights, and listen to The Green Vase. I remember the place as if it were only yesterday I discovered the green vase 
learnt its terrible secret and passed so nearly through the veil that separates sanity and the madness that lies beyond midnight. Biotex, the new soak and pre-wash powder presents Beyond Midnight by Michael McCabe. Mr. Royd, it's very big, of course, but then they built them big in those days. If it wasn't so strongly built, it'd have fallen to pieces years ago. A house needs to be cared for. Leave it empty. <laughs> hmm. Well, it's what I'm looking for. Nicely back from the road, surrounded by trees. A lot of trees, yes. Fields, pastures. It's hard to find somewhere without any close neighbors these days. Oh, I can show you others. There's a place in... Um... Feltham, I want to buy Lansford. You do? I do. Well, then, uh, nothing else I've known. Right, sir. You uh, write books, you said. I write books, yes. When can I take possession? Today. Oh, marvelous. I'm halfway through a book at the moment, you see. I've been stuck for weeks. I need peace. No. For five days after moving in, I worked from five in the morning right through the day until it was dark. The book progressed beautifully. I was even thinking of who the film rights should go to when I hit another dull patch. Nothing. I destroyed a few thousand words and left the typewriter until a possible return of inspiration. I was fairly satisfied, though, and it was with a lot of pleasure that I began to examine more carefully the house I'd so quickly and perhaps rashly bought. In most ways, it was typical of the houses erected in the country a hundred years ago. It needed a lot of money spent on it before it would assume the splendor it deserved. But I needed only one or two rooms. One thing puzzled me. The little attic. to rearrange the kitchen the next day, I knew instinctively that no good would come of hammering the typewriter. The place was in a terrible state. I cleaned out some cupboards, did a bit of inexpert scrubbing, and then, 
While I was reaching up to hook a number of miscellaneous objects out of a sort of old-fashioned tall boy thing in a corner, I accidentally knocked off a shelf. A canister. It opened, and a piece of folded paper fell out. An old piece of paper, brown with age, badly worn and tattered. on the paper. It was barely legible. The ink had faded badly and large sections of the script had been worn or torn away. It was dated over 30 years before and all that remained of the entire first paragraph beneath the date was Stephen Lansford, a young man of 25. And that was all the first paragraph said. Thereafter occurred a puzzling sequence of Half lines, sentences, paragraphs, in this order. To have him tutored in the arts. Particularly gifted in pottery making. Stephen developed a great fondness for his tutor, and under his guidance did the only constructive work of his life. A crude, ugly vase, bilious green in color. Stephen was proud of it kept it on the center of a small table in the living room. Dismissed. Stephen raged for days, and there began a subtle deterioration of a character which had always heretofore been shy and retiring. Ugly metamorphosis, a kind of madness in the course of which he would never allow his vase to be moved. Made his mother promise that it would never be moved under pain of dire punishment, but left to stand where he had put it. Some strange elemental bond seemed to have developed between the young man and his creation. After Stephen's death, Mrs. Lansford was unable to bear the thought of... Instead, she had the casket sealed, obtained permission from the authorities, and in the attic. Thereafter, rigid adherence to her promise. Stipulation in her will adjuring all future occupants not to move the vase. When a relative came to live in the house after her death, body torn, rent apart, found beside the table, I will, I know, eventually lift the vase. And that's all. I couldn't make a lot of sense out of it, I must admit. I tried to read to make out the bits that had faded, but it wasn't possible. On the end of the whole thing was a signature. Matthew Hargrove. Suddenly I remembered seeing in the living room which I hadn't had time to clean, a small table pushed over against the wall with a cloth covering an object of some bulk. <sighs> That'll be it, all right. See what they meant in that letter thing. It is crude. <laughs> Ugly as sin. 
Hugh Hargrove. Wonder who he was. Or is. There was nothing in Uncle's papers about anyone of that name. Matthew Hargrove. Matthew Hargrove. Matthew Hargrove. You're the young chap that bought the Lumsford place? Yes, I, uh, I expect to be a regular customer here. Hmm. People don't talk much about what happened to that Hargrove man. Used to be Mrs. Lumsford's lawyer. Wrote up the old woman's will. All queer, that was. All about some vase thing her son made. Hmm? Funny things went on after she died, you see. You want anything more than the razor blade, do you? What? Funny things? Well, there was Reuben Yates. That was her cousin. Came down when she got sick and stayed. You're from the town, aren't you? You don't get to hear about things like we do down here in the country, you see. What happened to Reuben Yates? Reuben Yates? Ah, well. They found him next to that table with the vase on it. Said he was torn apart. I see. And, and where does Matthew Hargrove come in? Oh, right after. He was the next one to move into the house. And he was the next one found by the table, too. Same as Reuben Yates. People say that they that saw him got sick in their stomachs for weeks afterwards. And then? No more. Nobody else moved into that house. From then till the day you moved in, nobody. Nobody at all. The inference behind Mrs. Culkin's, the lady in the village shop's words added to those in the fragmented letter, began to take a kind of nagging form in my thoughts. For the rest of that day, I tried to write. I couldn't. No city noises. But there was another distraction now. The vase. And the strange story behind it. The living room drew me. And I went in. I looked at the ugly thing for a long, long time. And then I stretched out my hand to lift it. Suddenly I remembered Reuben Yates and Matthew Hargrove. <laughs> Come on, Roy. Stop being. But even so, I only lifted the thing a quarter of an inch from the little table. It was about ten seconds later that I heard it. <laughs> under the vase on the table. 
Then I ran upstairs. I got down on my hands and knees and tried to peer through the keyhole. I couldn't see anything. As I was struggling to my feet, I felt a thin current of air cross my face. A short, warm draught of air. But there was no attic window through which the wind could enter. And the air that struck my face was warm. I bent down again. And this time, I put my ear to the keyhole. out of the air. Airwick keeps the home sweet with a country fresh atmosphere in every room. Put Airwick on your shopping list. It comes in economical bottle or up to the minute aerosol. Get Airwick. Soak, soak, that's all you have to do. Soak, soak, just for an hour or two you Amazing new biotech soaps stop and stains away. Clean, clean, everything soon will be clean, clean, for all the world to see. Soap, soap, stains away easily when you use new biotech. Get amazing new biotech today and let soaking do the I knew he would. 
We'd been great friends for many years. But for the first three days, I was loath to confide in him. Ah, this could be splendid, Dennis. This room, lights, air. Have to do something with those curtains, of course, but... Uh, and uh, what's this? Oh, for the love of heaven, don't touch that bar. Oh, why not? What's the... Sit down. Uh, I'll tell you. Hmm? Sit down. I told him everything that had happened since I took possession of the house effort to conceal his skepticism. Oh, Dennis. Come on, man. I mean, you must take me seriously. But granting that what you say is true, what... I mean, what the devil does it mean? I don't know. You read the letter? Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. It, it just read it in front of you, didn't I? Edward. Promise me. You will not touch that vase. But uh, that put me in the position of uh, subscribing to your fears. Please. All right, promise. Scout's honor. <laughs> I need beer. Lots of cold, cold beer. Come on, the ghost isn't walking at the moment. He promised. Oh, yes. But he promised without believing... Perhaps the very promise he made was a challenge. Next day, he seemed unable to concentrate. Twice when I spoke to him, he didn't hear me. He was in a kind of dream, thinking of something else. I knew what it was. I did everything I could to divert his attention. I read him part of my novel, which had come to a full stop. He listened and made some favorable comments. For a while... But I knew I was not holding his attention. He kept wandering about the house, and inevitably his journeying took him by or into the room where the table and the vase upon it had lived for the past 30 years. This thing seems to fascinate you. Hmm? The vase. Vase? Oh, the vase! <laughs> you can't take your eyes off it. I've been watching you. Oh, at first, well, I thought it was a fairy story. And now? Well, now I'm not so sure. I wonder. Don't. Some malignance is associated with that thing. Some bond ties it to something in the attic. What do you... I mean, something's linked with it in, 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 in space or time. Or in the attic. Or in the attic, yes. If you think so, why haven't you been up there to see? It's locked. Well, I couldn't bring myself to break in. There's no time like the present, then. Is there? You game? I, I, I don't know. Well, make up your mind. You, you can't just live here with half-truths. You either find out there's something nasty and horrible around, in which case you move out. Or you find out it's all a silly mistake. Lay the ghost and continue writing your book in peace. Only, incidentally, I think your book will be very splendid. Thank you. So, let's go and see what's up in the attic. Bring the lamp. All right. 
Got the lamp? Yes. Coat off, I think. Danger. Men at work. Yep. I take it that this is Stephen Lansford's coffin. His mother had him put here. I imagine so. Yes. The vase is the one he made uh, in the letter. Remember? Yes, exactly. Well. Yes, I, I know what you're thinking. It doesn't hold water, Dennis, and you ought to be the first to see it. Nothing about this thing holds water, as you put it. Well, it isn't a bad place to rest. If you were dead, I mean... Dry, at least. Better than six feet under, eh? <laughs> Don't stare at it like that. Nothing's going to rise up out of it, Daddy. Isn't it? No. Gooly slot the last of it. Let's get out of here. Okay. What are you going to do about uh, this room, attic? noise you talked about. Yes. Care to demonstrate? All right. Listen. I'm, I'm all ears. Slowly, I lifted the green vase half an inch off the table. <laughs> Interesting. All right. Now you've heard. Let's have that drink, and then I think I'm ready for bed. Books come to a dead stop at the moment. Do you know what? If nothing happens with the book, I mean, by the time you leave, I'll come back to town for a while. If and when I sell my book, if it's published and makes money, maybe I'll have this place... What are you doing? Put the 
moved towards him, whereupon he lifted the vase high above his head and backed away, grinning madly. Then we heard the attic door beaten down. Edward Clayton's face. Take the bars, Dennis! I can't move! I can't move! He dropped the bars, it smashed into a hundred pieces, and then the thing was at the door, and the door opened, and it was in the room! Dennis! I didn't wait. I leapt towards the window, and before I crashed through the glass, I half turned. Something had entered that room beyond my reach of sight, for Edward was hanging limply aloft in mid-air. That's it then, eh? That's it. Poor Edward. Poor. Poor Edward. <laughs> no, no, steady on. The doctor said you've not to get out of bed. You've had a shock. Poor Edward. I told him. I told him. I did, Sergeant. Yes. Well, the folks from Burnstrom went up there and there he was just like the others. It was a thing neither you nor any other man could have done. There's one more thing, sir, I'm afraid to have to tell you. They took matters into their own hands. They burned down your house. Took your stuff out first and set fire to the house. This was just as well. I couldn't have gone back there. Funny thing, though... You said the vase was smashed on the floor. It was. When we found it, all the broken pieces were piled together. As neat as you please. Smack in the middle of the table. Facebook at facebook.com slash terror1970 or you can find me on Instagram at Radio Show Nerd or on the Twitter <laughs> at Radio Show Nerd 1. Or if you just want to say hi, give me a suggestion, hey, maybe even a critique, definitely get a hold of me at radioshownerd at gmail.com again this is your host Keith aka the radio show nerd signing off <laughs> <laughs>